thank you for being here so promptly. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome Christian philosopher Peter S. Williams to Downhouse for the second time. Peter is Assistant Professor in Communication and Worldviews at Gemla Collin School of Journalism and Communication in Norway. Peter also leads philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertakes writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. He has also, also authored several books, including um, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, uh, a copy of which he has kindly given to the school two years ago on his first visit. Also, um, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists and A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Peter this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming and spending some of your evening time uh, doing this and uh, thinking about one of the really big fundamental questions of life, the universe, and everything. Uh, I've been invited to say something uh, positive about some of the arguments for the existence of God that will overlap with the syllabi uh, as well. And uh, thinking, uh, how could I uh, kind of cut this huge area uh, down to focus on a, a particular chunk of it uh, in a relevant manner, I hit upon the idea of talking about uh, Anthony Flew, who was a British uh, philosopher, uh, science and God, uh, particularly because uh, many people are under what I consider to be a misapprehension uh, that uh, science and belief in God are uh, at variance with one another, uh, that one picks one side or the other. Uh, but actually it's interesting to note that uh, Anthony Flew, who was for most of his career an atheist philosopher, actually uh, gradually became a uh, more and more convinced that there was a God, and in 2004 uh, declared that he now believed that there was a God, uh, primarily because of uh, incoming information within the sciences supporting premises in arguments for the existence of God that are philosophical arguments for the existence of God, but that have premises in those arguments uh, that come from information gathered uh, from the natural sciences. And this is a, a copy of his uh, last book, which here is cleverly titled uh, There Is No God, but with the no scribbled out and the A. It really does look like that. I've got a copy here, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And actually, um, soon after he wrote this, I was uh, privileged to, to meet uh, Dr. Florida Conference in London, and I have a, a, a signed uh, copy of his book uh, here with me. So, let me just say a few words uh, about the background of flu, and then we'll look at uh, three uh, arguments for God that particularly weighed with flu. Atheist Richard Carrier describes Anthony Flew, uh, who died in 2010. And he says he was one of the most renowned atheists of the 20th century. Another philosopher describes him as a legendary British philosopher and atheist who was an icon and champion for unbelievers for decades. And Flew was particularly famous, I guess, for taking the position that the onus of proof must lie upon the theist, that is, upon the person who believes in God. It's their job to give us good reasons to believe in God in order for us to think that it's reasonable to believe in God. Now, we could spend lots of time uh, debating the pros and cons of that position. It's a position I happen to disagree with. But that was his position, and we'll just give that as background to the fact that nevertheless, uh, although he put the, the onus of proof upon the believer, uh, he indeed came to think that the believer could meet that onus of proof. And it's uh, famous for books uh, with titles such as God and Philosophy, uh, Hume's Philosophy of Belief, he was particularly a specialist in the philosophy uh, of the Scottish sceptical philosopher David Hume. Uh, but since his days at Oxford in the mid-20th century, Flew said this, Since the beginning of my philosophical life, I have always followed the policy of Plato's Socrates. We must follow the argument wherever it leads. So he was saying to the people who believed in God, I think it's your job to give me good enough reasons to convince me, but I will follow the argument uh, wherever it leads. I am open to being convinced by the argument if I think you, you meet your burden of proof. 
and he gave up on atheism in 2004, declaring that the case for an Aristotelian God, the kind of God, a bit like Aristotle believed in, who has the characteristics of power and also intelligence, is now much stronger than it ever was before. Flew didn't come to believe in any particular uh, religious revelation claim. He didn't become a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim. He just became a, a philosophical theist, someone who thought that there was a good case for thinking that there was some kind of God, a creator of uh, power and intelligence, uh, a personal creator of the universe. I see there's a hand up, but I've got to get through my material, but there, there is Q&A time at the end, so do scribble down any questions that occur to you as we're going through so Flew said that science, qua science, that science as such, science being what science is, can't furnish an argument for God's existence, he thought. But he said, the laws of nature, life with its teleological organisation, that is its end-directed, its goal-directed organisation, and the very existence of the universe, he said, can only be explained in light of an intelligence that explains its own existence and that of the world. Such a discovery of the divine flu doesn't come through experiments or equations, but through an understanding of the structure they unveil and map. So science, he thought, reveals to us that the structure and nature of the physical universe, and in trying to understand, in the fullest sense, what science reveals to us about the world, he thought that there were then good reasons to believe in some kind of a creator. So let's look at those three elements that we have on the, the handouts there. And I've, I've just put the outline of the arguments I'll be going through and a couple of the most important quotes and some recommended resources at the end there on the handouts. Let's think about the existence, the very existence of the universe from a, a scientific perspective. This would be what philosophers would call a cosmological argument or a sort of causal argument for God from the existence of the universe. Okay. Big Bang cosmology, says uh, Marcus Chan, writing in uh, The New Scientist, describes the evolution of the universe from a very hot, dense state at the beginning but it doesn't say anything about what brought the universe into existence. This is a, a confusion that I, I often find people making. Big Bang Theory is a description of the cosmic past, but it's not an explanation of that cosmic past. It tells us that there was a, a finite cosmic past in which the universe has been getting bigger over time, but it doesn't explain why that is the case. So in 1992, so whilst he was still an atheist, Flew admitted to being embarrassed by the contemporary cosmological consensus that the universe had a beginning. Why did he, as an atheist, find this embarrassing? Well, he thought that the, the Big Bang theory was in tension with what he thought of as the the naturalistic, the materialistically sort of comfortable, obvious view that the, the existence of the physical universe, as he says, without end but also without beginning, together with whatever are found to be its most fundamental physical features, should be accepted as the, the ultimate explanation for things. If you can say, well, there's the universe, and we understand its laws, and the things that are in it that are obeying those laws, and they've just always been there, then there doesn't seem to be anything else you have to explain. You can explain everything by reference to the physical ultimates of the universe. But he conceded it is certainly neither easy, easy nor comfortable to maintain this traditional atheist uh, worldview of materialism in the face of Big Bang story. But of course... Big Bang cosmology only started around the really getting going in the sort of 1960s uh, with the uh, um, microwave background radiation discoveries and so on. And um, science comes and goes and scientists debate these things. And perhaps he was hoping that it, like many theories do, would sort of go away. But it didn't. Indeed, 
Here's a, an interesting uh, editorial uh, in New Scientist again from January 2012, reporting on a, a conference of cosmologists where they had a big conference uh, to celebrate the 70th birthday of Stephen Hawking, uh, the cosmologist, and they had a big conference. And here's New Scientist reporting on that conference. And so the Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Well, cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that dodge the need for a beginning whilst still requiring a Big Bang. And you might think, hang on a minute, how can, how can you have a Big Bang but not have a beginning of the universe? Well, it's ideas like, well, OK, maybe there was a Big Bang, but maybe before that there was a big crunch of a previous universe that had gone bang, grow, shrink, crunch, bang, grow, shrink, crunch. And maybe there'd just been an infinite cycle of universes. Ideas like this. So there are models that they tried that included the information about there being a Big Bang, but they're trying to say, but that wasn't a beginning, that there wasn't a beginning to the universe. But recent research has shot all these models full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years, and this was the problem that was nagging away at Anthony Flew in the 1990s. How do you get a universe complete with the laws of physics out of nothing? Don't you have to get it from somewhere? But where do you get it from when you're asking about the origin of the universe? So think through this argument with me. First premise, first truth claim about reality. It directly follows from Big Bang cosmology, and there are sort of conceptual philosophical arguments for this as well, but we're focusing on the, the scientific case here. Directly follows from cosmology at the moment, as it's generally conceived, that there was a first physical event. If you trace back the series of physical events into the past, if you hop into Doctor Who's TARDIS and go back in time, you can get to a day before which there isn't a previous day. It's the first length of time the space of a day, a first length of time the space of an hour, a first length of time the space of a second. When it's false to say during that second there was a previous one. There was a beginning. There was a first physical event. Second truth claim. Every physical event has a cause outside of itself. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose I ask you to loan me a book. And you say, mm, OK, but I don't have a copy of that book right now. But I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy and then I'll lend it to you. Well, suppose your friend says the same thing to you when you go to him to borrow the book, and so on, ad infinitum. Well, surely two things should be clear. First of all, if this process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum forever and ever, then I will never get the book. It will never be delivered to me. And second, if I do get the book delivered to me, then the process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. Somewhere down the, the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had to have the book without having to borrow it from anywhere else. Now let's apply that analogy to thinking about causation. The philosopher Richard Pertill puts it this way. Think of any contingent reality, anything that can be true but doesn't have to be real. The same two principles apply, he argues. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else, one event causing another event and so on, went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing 
that we're looking at has existence, then the process of getting existence behind its existence, as it were, can't have gone on ad infinitum to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. And quantum mechanics, which is the, the favoured go-to um, rebuttal of this kind of argument, particularly from sort of so-called new atheist thinkers like Lawrence Krauss, quantum mechanics does not provide a counterexample to this causal principle. As many cosmologists and philosophers of science will tell you, um, in certain interpretations of quantum mechanics, particles can appear from no particles, but they don't appear from nothing. They appear from the quantum background, and the quantum background, um, the vacuum, although we use the word vacuum, don't be misled by that word, it doesn't mean a nothing, a literal nothing. The quantum vacuum is a physical state of interacting fields described by very complex laws and mathematics. It's a something, it's just a different kind of something than physical particles. Um, David Oderberg says, quantum fluctuations are supposed to involve particles emerging from pre-existing space-time structure. It's still a something, not a nothing. So an argument for premise two, this is kind of a sub-argument for premise two of our main argument, Anything contingent, by its very nature, must have a cause outside of itself. But secondly, physical events are contingent things. Now, if those two premises are true, it follows deductively that every physical event must have a cause outside of itself. Which is premise two, every physical event has a cause outside of itself. And if you combine that claim with the claim that there was a first physical event, again, deductively it follows that therefore the first physical event had a cause outside of itself. When we start following down this track, one more little unit of argument will take us to a very intriguing conclusion. If we carry that conclusion forward into a new argument the first physical event had a cause outside of itself. If we've got that far, and we add this premise, the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause. Here's the first physical event happening. What caused it? Oh, the previous physical event. There is no previous physical event. This is the first one. But if it has to have a cause, and there's no physical thing, to cause it, well, causes could only, in theory, be either physical or, what, non-physical. So, we can get to the conclusion that, therefore, the first physical event had a non-physical cause outside of itself. And you could go further with the argument trying to analyse what kind of thing would this non-physical cause be, but we'll, we'll leave it at that stage for today to save a bit of time. That's a version of what's called the Kalam uh, cosmological argument for those of you who are studying the, the syllabus. The philosopher Dallas Willard sums it up very neatly in this little paragraph here, I think. Uh, this is from his essay that I referenced at the end there, uh, three-stage argument for the existence of God. He says that the dependent character or the contingent character of all physical states together with the completeness of the series of dependencies underlying the existence of any given physical state, that, that the series of causes isn't ad infinitum, logically implies at least one self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. So in 2004... Given now that these attempts to get around having a beginning, despite the evidence for a Big Bang, flew conceded in 2004, um, there does seem to be a reason for a first cause, with capital letters indicating this is some sort of transcendent first cause. Then I want to look at two different uh, loci of design arguments two places where information from contemporary science has, has reinforced a particular way of arguing for design 
and therefore a designer of these things. Remember, Flew talked about the, the very laws of nature that are discovered by science. We can put this as a, an argument from what's called cosmic fine-tuning. Uh, so, suppose, just as a sort of analogy to what scientists have discovered about the what's called the, the fine-tuned natures of the laws of physics, you might sort of think, as scientists used to think, that we discover the laws of physics of the world, and then you can kind of do a thought experiment. What would the world be like if we changed those laws a bit? If we made you know, the strength of gravity... What would happen in, in the universe if gravity were a bit weaker than it is, or a bit stronger than it is? And people sort of thinking about this used to say, well, I suppose things would be a little bit different than they are, but basically the same. And actually that turns out, when you sort of run the, the numbers, as it were, to be wrong. Suppose by analogy we discovered a universe-creating machine, some sort of uh, massive thing, let's get the... Clicker working here. There we go. So here's this massive universe-creating machine we stumble upon, and it has a, a whole load of dials on it, each dial attached to a different law of nature. Uh, things like the, the electromagnetic force, the, the, the speed of light constant, laws of nature, and the constants that uh, are discovered in the, the basic parameters of the way our universe works. Here's the one for the gravitational force. And suppose we, we just moved the dial slightly. This, this machine is set up to represent the way that, that physics and the laws of physics and the constants are in the universe that we inhabit. And we just change one of them slightly, change the gravitational force by a very small percentage, and then we press the create a universe button. The astounding thing is that you would end up with... Well, probably very little at all. You might have, in some cases, a universe that didn't even last long enough before it re-collapsed upon itself to have matter in existence, let alone chemistry, let alone organic chemistry, let alone life. Other universes would fly apart so, so quickly that matter would never congeal together, and, and so on. That actually, a lot of these constants and basic laws of physics are, as it were, on a knife edge. Some scientists have des described this as uh, the Goldilocks enigma. Uh, cosmologist Paul Davies wrote a book called The Goldilocks Enigma, an analogy to the, the fairy tale of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And you know, One of the porridges is too hot, and one is far too cold, but you know, baby bears is just right. And our universe seems to be just right for the existence of interesting complex things. And actually running the numbers, it's very, very unlikely that such a universe should exist. Uh, the set of universes in which complex, interesting things could exist is a very minute subset of the set of, of possible, self-consistent physical universes, as it were. So the American philosopher William Lane Craig um, puts a, a fine-tuning design argument like this. He says this, this fine-tuning of the universe, there are only a number of ways in which we might go about explaining it. He says, well, it's, it's due either to, to physical necessity, other things just kind of had to be that way, actually. They couldn't have been different. Or we might explain it by chance. You might say it was by luck that things kind of fell out that way. Or... Potentially, it might be by design. Now, how do, you, how do you make a principled choice between these explanations? If you can rule out physical necessity or chance, you can rule in design, for example. I mentioned uh, a moment ago um, Stephen Hawking um, and that conference in honour of his 70th birthday in his uh, recent book, The Grand Design. He says this... Uh, that the fundamental numbers and even the form of the apparent laws of nature are not demanded by logic or physical principle. That when scientists are thinking, actually things could have been different, what would it have been like if, say, gravity were a bit stronger? So that, that really is possible. Things didn't have to be 
the way that they are. And you think any scientist who talks about the idea of, of multiple universes or other universes that are different from ours uh, is really agreeing with that, saying that universes don't have to be the way that our universe is. So if we were to, to cross off physical necessity, how do we make a principled choice between chalking it up to luck and chalking it up to design? Craig explains that as a basis for what's called a, a design inference, which is something that lots of particular sciences depend upon doing, you have to have both um, high improbability of an event and also a conformity to an independently given pattern. You've got these kind of two criteria that both have to be met. He says when these two elements are present... We have what statisticians call specified complexity, which is a good tip-off to intelligent design. And he gives a nice kind of homely example. He says, for example, in a poker game, uh, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. But if you find that every time a certain player deals the cards, he gets all four aces, you can bet this is the result of design rather than chance if you accuse him of cheating and he says well what I'm just being very lucky there comes a point (laughs) at which you say that's just not going to fly as an explanation because it is so unlikely that you keep getting the advantageous cards that you're hitting this independently given pattern and it's that kind of complexity that the the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits. It's both very, very unlikely and it's hitting the subset of of patterns that allow for anything complex, long-lasting, physical interacting happen rather than, well, just nothing. Richard Dawkins uh, endorses this point, writing in um, the Humanist Journal uh, Free Inquiry. He says that specified complexity, this concept of specified complexity, he says, takes care of the very sensible point that in the unique disposition of its parts, a pile of detached watch parts in a box is as improbable as a fully functioning, what he calls genuinely complicated watch. Both this and that are one possible arrangement of all of those parts out of all the possible arrangements of those parts. But clearly, there's something about this particular arrangement of parts that makes it very implausible to say, oh, I was lucky, I had a box full of watch parts, I was shaking it around one day, and this watch popped out. You, know, you wouldn't buy that explanation. And that's because of this difference of not just the complexity, but of the independent pattern. He says, what's specified about a watch is that it's improbable in the specific direction of telling time. Another example, someone enters a sequence of numbers beep, 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 into a cash hole in the wall machine and it gives them money. Were they lucky or did they get the money by design? When a complex event matches an independently given or a functionally specified pattern like that, we very naturally and rightly infer design. Now, a personal identification number has four different digits, each with ten options, because you've got zero as well as one to nine. So there are ten to the power of four different personal identification numbers. So that's a one in ten thousand chance of getting someone's PIN number right by luck on on your first go. To give you a comparison of the scale here, there are about ten to the 32 grains of sand on planet Earth. There are about 10 to the 80 fundamental particles in the observable universe. A physicist called Roger Penrose calculates that the odds of our universe's low entropy condition obtaining, this is just one of those fine-tuning parameters of the universe, the low entropy condition, is on the order of one chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. That is a beyond astronomical number. 
given that there are 10 to the 80 fundamental... You couldn't even write that number down in longhand. The universe isn't big enough for you to do it. As Hawking says, for our theoretical models of inflation of the Big Bang Theory to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. What he's basically saying, in slightly different language, is the fine-tuning of the universe has this property of specified complexity, unlikeliness. It's basically endorsing premise two of this argument. Again, it's a sub-argument where we're making uh, to make a principled choice between chance and design. If we say things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed, the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity of a much higher order of complexity than seeing someone get a pin number, right? So it follows that the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed, if both of those premises are true. <coughs> so that gives us a, a principled way of making this choice between chance of design here and ruling in design and ruling out the other explanations. Now, Richard Dawkins, although he accepts the, the whole thing about specified complexity being a good sort of way of detecting design, doesn't want to accept the conclusion of that kind of argument, and he has an objection. So this is, uh, given his best-selling book, The God Delusion, in which this appears, this is probably the best-known objection to this kind of argument at the moment. And he says, this objection, or this argument for God, this objection to atheism, can be answered by the suggestion that there are many universes. Okay. Now note, first of all, that since he's, he wants to invoke the concept of many universes, he's agreeing with Hawking and so on that the universes don't have to be the way our universe is. He wants to say, well, maybe there are lots of different universes that are not just carbon copies, photocopies of our universe, but they're different universes that are different, that have different tunings of those finely tuned laws, that have different constants, that have different initial conditions upon which those laws of nature are operating. And if you had enough different universes in that sense, then it becomes likely that by chance you would have one of them hit this specific pattern of having complex life-bearing properties and so on. So he's really saying um, the universe doesn't exhibit specified complexity because it's not complex enough if there are a whole load of other universes out there. If we gave ourselves lots and lots of rolls of the dice, as it were. So he's saying if there were enough different universes, then the specified tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex, wouldn't be unlikely enough to justify a design inference, because you, it wouldn't be hitting both of the criteria that we set out. And, of course, his crucial second premise, in order to get him to the conclusion that the fine-tuning doesn't justify a design inference, the crucial premise here is flashing away in red here, say, warning, what danger, Will Robinson, that there are enough different universes. It's not enough just to claim that if there were enough different universes, then your argument wouldn't work. To undermine the argument, he actually has to show that there are enough different universes. But, of course, he doesn't do that. And there are multiple problems with the whole suggestion of a so-called multiverse anyway. Here's one that Bill Craig puts forward, drawing again on the work of Roger Penrose. He says, Penrose calculates that the odds of our low entropy condition of the universe are this number of 1 to the 10 to the 10 to the 123 that I've mentioned. Now, Craig points out that the, the odds of our solar system, our entire solar system, being formed instantly by the random collision of particles is estimated to be about 1 in 10 to the 60. 1 in 10 to the 10 to the 60. 
Now that is a vast, I mean, it's hugely unlikely that something like, like our solar system should have just come together, just like that, boom, by chance. But, although that's a vast number, it is an inconceivably smaller number than 1 in 10 to the 10 to the 123. So, this means that if our universe were just a, a random product of some sort of quantum fluctuating bubble universe, multiverse scenario, or whatever. If our universe were one member of a collection of randomly ordered worlds, it's vastly more probable that we should be observing a much smaller universe. If all of these different universes are popping into existence by chance, there's a much higher chance that we would see a region of space about the size of our solar system, which would be enough for us to, to exist, would all we need, just randomly having come into existence just like that. That would be much more probable than the idea that there are loads and loads and loads and loads of different universes, actually. Did the agnostic Jim Holt in his recent book, Why Does the World Exist? He says that since other universes are, by definition, not directly observable from our own, if you could directly observe it, it would be part of our universe, the burden of proof, this burden of proof concept again, would be clearly on those who claim that they exist. But there currently is no experimental evidence for the existence of multiple universes. Um, so Dawkins' objection really boils down to saying something directly parallel to this. If I hold up the complete works of Shakespeare and someone says, Ah, did you know that if enough chimpanzees were typing away for long enough, add enough typewriters randomly, they could produce the complete works of William Shakespeare just by luck. Well, OK, let's grant that idea. Maybe they could. But why is it, when I look at a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare, no one thinks to themselves, ah, good grief, there must be a heck of a lot of chimpanzees somewhere, supplied with a load of typewriters and a lot of paper. We immediately think, ah, Probably there was some sort of author who wrote that book. Maybe Shakespeare did it, you know. Um, what's happening is that anyone faced with this sort of many chimps hypothesis as an alternative explanation for a book uh, is going to ask, is there any independent evidence of the existence of a giant chimp typing pool? And in the absence of you actually you know, giving me evidence of the existence of the typing pool, the one author explanation is far superior to the multiple chimps random chance explanation. Well, surely the same thing should hold about the fine-tuning of the universe. So as Paul Davis, as, uh, from his book The Goldilocks Enigma, which I, I mentioned, he also notes that multiverse theories, and Davis is an agnostic, he says they merely shift the problem elsewhere anyway. They sort of shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. Because there has to be a universe-generating mechanism. In any scientific physical theory of multiverse, there has to be some sort of physical mechanism that is causing the production of all of these different universes. But why should there exist a mechanism that has this very specific property of churning out lots of different universes? rather than photocopies of universes? Why should the range of possible universes that that mechanism can generate include the subset of possible universes in which life can exist, rather than not including that subset in all the different universes it spits out? Actually, what you end up noticing is that any physical system that spits out multiverses would itself have a property of being very, very unlikely, and hitting a rather specific target of the subset of possible multiple universe generating generators. So you kick the problem up, you've moved the ruckle in the carpet along, but you haven't solved the problem. So Davis concludes the multiverse theories can't provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life. A second um, locus, a second area, that tugged on flu as he was thinking about 
incoming scientific evidence about the universe. Well, not just the fine-tuning, the apparent designed nature of the basic laws of, of physics, but life itself. The fine-tuning of the universe means that life is possible, but it doesn't guarantee that it's actual. And indeed, Flew thought the more and more we learn about the nature of life, the more and more we thought about the, the change from a universe that didn't have life in it to a universe that did, the more he thought that gap couldn't be bridged without bringing in some sort of designing intelligence. Indeed, the atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton, notes this very important point. However life arose from non-life, it didn't happen via the Darwinian mechanism of natural selection. Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. So Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even purport to explain how life came to arise in the first place. That's the subject area of so-called chemical evolution. But there, evolution doesn't imply anything with a, a selection mechanism. It only means change over time, that there's been a change over time from there not being life to there being life. But what is the mechanism, what caused that, how did that come about? The atheist Thomas Nagel, in his recent book, Mind and Cosmos, says he thinks that the dominant scientific consensus on this faces problems of probability, again, that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through so-called accidental mutations and natural selection, but again, particularly, he says, with respect to the formation from, from dead, from non-living matter, of physical systems capable of such evolution in the first place. The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and of its control of the chemical processes necessary for life, the harder those problems seem. Freeman Dyson, famous scientist, says, the origin of life is the deepest mystery in the whole of science. There's an enormous gap between the simplest living cell and the most complicated, naturally occurring mixture of non-living chemicals. We've no idea when and how and where this gap was crossed. It's a bit, back to our watch analogy, it's a bit like saying organic chemistry at the moment can give you uh, natural accounts of how various watch parts come into existence naturally from mixing chemicals together under various conditions and so on. But there's a whole world of difference between saying, look, you can, you can just get naturally occurring bits of watch and having a watch. Uh, it really is that kind of conceptual leap. Just to give you a very quick idea of the, the kind of complexity that we're talking about, here's a quick clip from a recent science documentary about the machinery of the cell. And notice that the, getting the essential bits and bobs from one place to another in the cell so it can be alive. You've got to have that kind of complexity in place before there's a possibility of undergoing evolution. So you've got to explain how you get that kind of a complexity without invoking evolution by natural selection. Well, just yeah, change over time, but that's a description. That's not an explanation. What's the explanation? The odds against life coming from non-life, something called abiogenesis, a genesis of bio from a without biogenesis, uh, Calculated by um, Bruce L. Gordon, he's a professor of science and mathematics at King's College in New York. And he's drawing upon recent experimental work by a biochemist called Douglas Axe. And he's looking at the, the prevalence of functional protein folds in amino acid sequence space. So proteins in the body are made of strings of amino acids of different kinds. And according to the the arrangement of amino acids in a line, those strings of amino acids fold in different ways. And when they fold in different ways, they get, di get different proteins that can do different tasks uh, chemically within the cell. And you notice that Axe's works leads to the conclusion that we might reasonably expect a single 
protein folding domain, a functional a protein that would fold and do a task. To have a probability in amino acid sequence space of about 1 in 10 to the 74. So out of all the possible ways of, say, arranging amino acids in lines of 150, um, there's a very, very small subset, again, of that possible arrangement of amino acids that would actually do anything functional that would perhaps even fold in the first place, let alone do something. A reasonable estimate for the suite of biologically functional proteins that might get life as we know it off the ground requires about a, a thousand folding domains. So in consequence of which, we'd be looking at probabilities of the order of 1 in 10 to the 74,000 for getting that suite of proteins that you need for something that's capable of undergoing evolution because it's now alive and can replicate with differentiated information passing on and so on. And the order of 1 in 10 to the 74,000 if you want it to just happen by, by luck. There's no realistic probability of these things happening by non-intelligent means, argues Gordon. Paul Davis, uh, in another book of his on the, the origin of life this kind, um, and in the 50th anniversary edition of New Scientist, he said that, that the origin of life is one of the great outstanding mysteries. Nobody has a clue, he says, how it could have happened naturalistically. We haven't a clue, he said recently in a, in a lecture. Atheist Eugene Koonin, who's a specialist in this area, said in 2011 that the origin of life here is a failure. We have no plausible, coherent model, let alone a validated scenario for the emergence of life. He says a succession of exceedingly unlikely steps is essential for the origin of life, from the synthesis and accumulation of nucleotides to the origin of translation, making the final outcome seem almost a miracle, he says. Although, of course, he's an atheist, he doesn't believe it is a miracle. But this, again, one of these incoming bits of information from science that started flu thinking. The more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, he said, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup of some kind could just magically generate, say, even the genetic code for encoding how to build all those proteins within a cell. He said the evidential situation concerning God has been transformed in the more than 50 years since Watson and Crick won the Nobel Prize for their discovery of the structure of DNA. It's become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of the evolution of that first reproducing organism. On the one hand, you can say that naturalistic efforts have so far failed to provide a plausible account of how that could happen. On the other hand, he said, the enormous complexity by which those results were achieved looked to me like the work of an intelligence. Richard Dawkins passes a very interesting comment in his book, A Devil's Chaplain, uh, about DNA and information in, in organisms. He says this, At the bottom of my garden is a large willow tree, and it's pumping downy seeds into the air, containing DNA whose coded characters spell out specific instructions for building willow trees. Those fluffy specks are literally spreading instructions for making themselves. It's raining instructions out there. It's raining programs. That's not a metaphor. It's the plain truth. But if it started raining floppy disks out of the sky and you put them into the computer here and you found that it had a program called Windows 8 or whatever, what would you think about the origin of the information on those disks? Oh, it just happened by chance. As Howard Taylor says, if you receive a letter written in a language or a mathematical code, you cannot discern the origin of the language or the code from the chemistry of the ink and paper. And that's true of DNA. There are bonding forces that keep the amino acids in, in place along the spine of the DNA, but there are no physical forces that determine what position the amino acids take in the sequence. 
Indeed, if there were physical forces that determined the position of the amino acids, they couldn't be used for encoding multiple different bits of information, because they would always have to spell out the same bit of information. By its very nature as a code, you can't explain it from the, the substrate physical forces, just like ink and paper and so on don't explain the works of Shakespeare. Its message is explained not by the chemistry of the ink and paper, but by the mind who wrote it. Well, again, back to our premise that if things exhibiting specified complexity are probably the work of intelligence, given that the very existence of life capable of undergoing evolution depends crucially upon such information, oughtn't we to conclude that the best explanation of life includes an appeal to intelligence? And I reference you to Stephen Meyer's recent book, Signature and the Cell, uh, for more on that topic. Who designed the designer? This is Dawkins' favourite rebuttal of this. Well, that's just begging the question. If, he, if he'd written a book called The Created God Delusion, that wouldn't have sold very many copies. You can't just assume that any designer would be the kind of thing that needs designing. People have generally thought of God as the kind of thing that doesn't need designing, because he's, the, back to the first argument, the first cause. The, the cause that explains itself doesn't need an explanation outside of itself. And anyway... If you have a, a kind of rule that said in order to be the best explanation of some data, you have to have an explanation of your explanation, you'd generate an infinite regress. You'd always have to have an explanation of the explanation of the explanation, and so on and so on and so on, and you'd never be able to explain anything. Dawkins' argument here, if you took it seriously, would end up being an argument against doing science, um, which is surely proving too much. Dawkins assumes that, that any god or creator would have to be highly improbable in the very same statistical sense as the things that he's meant to explain, like the fine-tuning of the universe or the information in life and so on. But that's just not the case. As the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel says, God, if there is one, is not a complex physical inhabitant of the natural world. So Flew concluded that the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new an enormously powerful argument to design. What I think the DNA material has done is show that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements together. So, as we started with, he concluded uh, by 2004 that the origins of the laws of nature and of life and of the universe point clearly to an intelligent source. And note, interestingly, again, he then passed the comment the burden of proof is on those who argue to the contrary. So he'd moved from being an atheist who said, I don't believe in God, the burden of proof is on you to give a good argument for it, but if you do, I'll change my mind, to saying, here now I think modern science has discovered some things, that means I should change my mind, and actually now I think that evidence is so strong that if you disagree with me, well, I'm going to put the burden of proof on you to show that I'm wrong. <laughs>